Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from... How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story, be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, Give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Gravity. The Ash Wednesday services are over for another year. We have descended into the season of Lent, the season of lamentation, of wailing and the gnashing of teeth, the season of remembering who we really are. No other season gets to the heart of the matter quite like Lent. This year, Trudy, our student assistant, talked me into letting her update the symbol of ashes with something moderns can better relate to, Ours is, after all, a suburban congregation, anxious to own a piece of whatever is current. It seems that what is current these days, in academic circles at least, does not include the concept of sin. The real meaning of Ash Wednesday, she argued, is that within our basic human condition of frailty and mortality are hidden the seeds of our divinity, seeds that produce flowers and fruit, Seeds of pregnant possibility that are the very antithesis of the lifelessness we behold in ashes. The word human, she reminded me, shares the same root with the word humus. That organic matter made from the decomposition of living stuff from which new organisms are given life. It did seem to make a certain amount of sense. It anticipated the death-resurrection connection of Holy Week to which Lent points, and promoted a more hopeful view of the human condition. But then, I've been out of school for a while now and find myself a bit overwhelmed by abstract thought. I didn't want to appear to be out of touch. At the evening Ash Wednesday service, Trudy preached about the soil from which we come. We are dust from the ground, she said, into which God breathes life. 
We are compost, rich with potential. We are dirt, in which God has planted a divine seed. It was not a bad sermon, and really quite fascinating in its own way. I then invited the congregation forward to receive the sign of ashes, an ancient sign denoting our human frailty and sinfulness. Solemnly, they approached in a line up the center aisle. Kneeling reverently before me, I anointed their foreheads with potting soil, pinched between my thumb and fingers from a clay flower pot held by Trudy. Remember you are dirt, I intoned, and to dirt you shall return. The dirt fell in clumps onto their cheeks and noses, sprinkling down over their white shirts and blouses. When they left the church after the service, walking silently out into the night, they looked like miners emerging from the solemn depths. I hear things went smoothly for Father David this year, though, back in my old parish of St. Jude's. Of course, things could only improve year by year from his first Ash Wednesday there. Each Lent since then has represented a kind of rising from the ashes of his own frail humanity. Father David is a bit of a purist when it comes to liturgy. This does not mean he is a traditionalist, quite the opposite, in fact. He could not afford to be a traditionalist in any case. Beverly, his wife, with her boundless enthusiasm, leading the startled congregation in sing-along folk songs, her guitar strings buzzing, her bountiful hips swaying, leaves no room for him to be stuffy. But he does insist that worship be intentional. Even their dated 60s-style folk mass, that it be well thought out and grounded in solid liturgical principles— Father David is nothing if not a man of principle. There are limits to principles, however. They are fine in the high, billowy realms of academia. But brought down to the muck of everyday living, principles are inclined to slip and slide around like the rest of us. This was a lesson that had not been available to Father David when, fresh out of seminary, he served his curacy at the cathedral. There, disconnected from grassroots in the usual sense, and hoisted up instead by a congregation of prominent VIPs who expected their worship to be lavish and grandiose, the clergy swished about in their cassocks, doing pretty much as they pleased. Father David was in his element at the cathedral. The magnificent pipe organ would sound a brassy fanfare as they entered in procession down the long aisle, The paid choir offered complex canticles and titillating motets on behalf of the worshippers. The incense wafted up through shafts of tinted light toward the high vaulted ceilings. This was worship as God intended it, exultant and full-bodied. It was an intimidating environment for others, though. Even the highly paid wedding consultants and funeral directors instinctively knew their place. They floated suggestions, or presented an alternative view. But the final say belonged to the clergy, a responsibility that extended even to young Father David. When he was new to St. Jude's, and Mr. Gavel of the Oldham and Gavel Funeral Home told him that this was simply the way they did things here, Father David received the news as if the man were speaking in a foreign language. "'Excuse me?' he said." Well, you can't really plan these things in advance. You don't want a burial in the winter, the ground's too hard, and you can't just wait until the summer because there might be a stench, so 
You store the casket in the vault beneath the church through the winter months where the cold works in your favor. You wait for a good day in the spring when the runoff's done and the ground's dried up a bit, and then you move the casket out and into the plot. You don't make a big thing about it. You just do it when you can. The families don't usually want to be there. It's just the way it's done here. Always has been with every minister before. Well, I don't think so, Father David replied evenly. People need to attend to every step of the grieving process or they don't move through it. And that includes being present at the interment. Now, that's my understanding. And I am, after all, the rector of this parish. Mr. Gavel pursed his lips. Even Nordstrom's interment became an occasion of considerable public interest, more interest, in fact, than she had ever garnered while living. She was a spinster who had lived all her life in the family home, tending to her crotchety father well into his old age and far past her own prime. She was a nervous person, and people felt a little sorry for her, cooped up there with the old man until he died only six years before her own death. Posthumously, however, she became the subject of several sermons, as Father David hammered home the point that, having gathered around the font at her baptism, the church had an obligation to be present at her burial, especially as Eva had no known living relatives. The church, he said, had given far too much away to secular practices and needed to reclaim its central role at the crossroads of life, like death, for instance— where grieving had been given over to paid professionals who, after all, were only running a business. Recorded music, electronic curtains, fashionable limousines, none of which the people of this town had ever seen. What did these have to do with Christian burial, he asked. But they would have the opportunity next week, it being Ash Wednesday, to reclaim the burial rite. Eva Nordstrom's remains would be removed from the vault beneath the church and taken to their final resting place in the church cemetery. He certainly expected the congregation to be present. Wayne, the rector's warden, took Father David aside and tried to reason with him. Look, he said, in as friendly yet firm a manner as he could, you're new here. You have to let people do things their own way. Lloyd charges double for digging a grave this time of year, with frost still in the ground. And if we should get some warm weather like they're calling for and there's a runoff, well, the cemetery's not the place you want to be. But Father David stuck to his guns. Eva would not be denied a proper Christian burial, and besides, Ash Wednesday would be an ideal time for the parish to be reminded of its mortality. Even Beverly held her tongue. Her husband had a right to establish himself as the rector of this parish, even as she worried about the inevitable pain of learning things the hard way. Father David drew upon his prerogative as liturgical officer of the parish and combined the Ash Wednesday service with the service of interment. It was all thought out and meticulously planned. The service would begin in the church with the readings and the sermon. Then the congregation would move in procession to the cemetery that adjoined the church to the east. Mrs. Good would remain at the organ so that, as the congregation processed out of doors, they would hear the music and be reminded that they were still engaged in worship. They would participate in the prayers at the graveside, witness the interment, then return solemnly to the church to receive the imposition of ashes. Father David was feeling quite pleased with himself when the day arrived. He was already thinking of writing up the service and submitting it to, by what right, 
a quarterly journal for modern liturgical reformers. When Wayne called at breakfast time to draw his attention to the unseasonable thaw that was causing quite a runoff in the cemetery, Father David simply thanked him for his concern and said he would see him later at the service. At 10.45, Father David stepped from the rectory and made his way across the street to the church. It was an uncommonly spring-like day. Birds chirped from the bare lilac bushes at the edge of the driveway and dropped greetings from the telephone wires overhead. At the road, a small river gurgling wildly rushed past his feet toward the storm sewer traps further down the hill. He sucked in the fresh country air and noted with satisfaction that all seemed in readiness for the service. Two Oldman Gavel part-timers stood outside by the vault door, ready to assist in the removal of the casket when the time came. Norm greeted Father David in the narthex and offered him a pew bulletin and a hymn book, something he did by force of habit, even though Father David typed the order of service out for himself and always used his own copy of the hymn book, a music edition. Mr. Gavel was seated in the back row of the church and gave Father David a slight nod as he entered. Mrs. Good was getting ready at the organ, flipping through her music book and pressing the pages open at the right spots. Father David went up into the vestry and robed, feeling triumphant. At 10.55 he emerged from the vestry in his cassock and surplice, rather than his alb and stole, an appropriately somber choice, he thought, and knelt reverently at the prayer desk to say his prayers. The church was beginning to fill. At 11 o'clock Norm tolled the bell, and Father David got up, kissed his stole, put it around his neck, and made his way down the aisle to join the choir, which had gathered at the back. Mrs. Good looked up to see that all was ready, and then launched into the processional hymn, Forty Days and Forty Nights. The congregation rose, and the service began. During the sermon, Father David laid the foundations for what was to follow. In a few minutes, they would be going out to commit Eva's body to the ground. This is all we are, without God. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. Yet they would do so joyfully, because they knew that Eva's soul resides with God eternally. This is God's gift. We must all remember that without God, we are nothing. With God, we have eternal life. I wish I had had such confidence in my own early days as a preacher. I had certainly never offered the people of St. Jude's such authoritative teaching while I was their young rector. I can understand with envy that Father David felt a certain sense of pride in the proceedings. Everything was going just as he had planned. He was making his mark in their midst. He donned his funeral cape and led his flock out the main doors and around the side of the church to the vault. There, the two Oldman Gavel part-timers were joined by four men of the congregation as they entered the vault and emerged with the casket containing even Nordstrom. The mud at the entrance sucked at their overshoes and their feet slipped, but they were able to make it up the slight incline to where the snow melted in dirty mounds. They proceeded up the narrow path that had been cleared to Eva's grave. Above the whistle of the wind in the trees and the screech of the transport trucks gearing down as they entered town, they could hear Mrs. Good at the organ back in the church. They could also hear the sound of water trickling. When they got to the grave, it was already half-filled with water. Mr. Gavel looked over at Father David. 
But Father David, calm and self-possessed, assumed his place at the head of the grave, while the pallbearers maneuvered the casket onto the planks that were extended across the hole. All of us go down to the dust, Father David read, yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The pallbearers reached for the straps that were laid out beneath the casket and, lifting slightly, removed the planks and began lowering the casket into the grave. A few feet down, it slapped the surface of the groundwater and came to rest, bobbing slightly. Father David raised his hand to pronounce the blessing when he slipped out of sight. The ground gave way beneath his feet and down he went into the hole, He hit the casket with three distinct thuds, one with his heels, one with his tailbone, and then one with the back of his head. He lay still for a moment atop the casket, trying not to move, his eyes fixed straight ahead, his hands at his sides, feeling out the seriousness of his situation. But the casket was tossing as if at sea, and he began sliding off, sideways, into the muck. Rolling himself over, he made a grab for the other side of the casket, but he was too far away. He began slipping into the watery depths until he caught a handle on the side of the casket and held on. When he had stabilized his position, wedged between the casket and the dirt wall, half submerged in the watery grave, he looked up into a ring of horrified faces peering down. From the midst of the throng, a hand emerged from a dark sleeve, Wrapped around it was one end of a strap, a lifeline. Father David reached up and caught hold of it and was pulled up into the arms of Mr. Gavel. Off in the distance, Mrs. Good swelled the strains of Abide With Me. Father David was sick the following Sunday and a replacement had to be called in for the services. Around three in the afternoon, Mrs. Bunting came by with a chicken casserole and Wayne phoned to see how Father David was getting along. Fine, Beverly told him. It was just a cold. She was sure he'd be back on his feet in a couple of days. The next morning, Mr. Gavel dropped by and asked if Father David was receiving visitors. Beverly knocked softly on the study door and let him in. Father David was sunk deep in his high-backed wing chair, a book closed on his lap, a box of tissues on the table beside him. He looked at his visitor without getting up. Mr. Gavel took a seat on the small couch opposite Father David, his hat in hand. He leaned forward. So, he said, how do you want to do things next year? And when the fog on blows I will be coming home I've been reading from my book, How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, where we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Mystic Cave.